Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we do anything else, I just want to remind you that we're still open for submissions. So, if you're a horror writer yourself, or maybe you've got friends, family, neighbors, acquaintances, or co-workers that like to write dark and disturbing fiction, well, we want to read it. I asked our editors if there's anything specific they've been craving in the submissions, And so far, the top runners are Nautical Horror, Haunted Houses, and Cats. Bonus points if you somehow weave all three together. I don't know, Haunted Houseboat filled with mer-cats? Who knows, could be the next thing. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions will give you all of the details on what we've been looking for and how you can submit. And link you right to our submissions platform. If you've ever been tempted to share the terrifying darkness that lurks in the furthest corners of your soul, 
well, there's no better time to unleash it on the world. It's hard to believe, but including this week, we're just one state and a district away from completing our tour of haunted locations, killer creatures, and terrifying legends of the United States. We've come a long way from where we started in Virginia on the East Coast. More than a year has passed since we first packed our bags and hit the road together. We've crisscrossed the country a couple of times and taken a few detours along the way, too. I hope you've been enjoying our road trip through the dark and disturbing. Because, if you're up for it, I'd love to take you into my neck of the woods, share with you some of the darkness that lurks beneath the friendly, polite exterior of the Great White North, Canada. But before we head off on the next leg of our journey into dark places, we're going to cool our heels for a couple of weeks. Camp out, restock, resupply, and re-energize. Maybe find ourselves a nice... I don't know, abandoned cabin in the middle of nowhere, and get a warm fire roaring to spin some yarns around. But I better not get too far ahead of myself. We've still got a few stops to make yet. We did our best a couple of weeks ago to get out of the cold and snow. But this week, we're going to dive right into the thick of it. More than any state in the U.S., Alaska holds the distinction of being the most remote and unexplored. Vast swaths of land haven't even been stepped on by a single human foot, and it seems nature may be more than happy to keep it that way. In 1972, Hale Boggs, U.S. House Majority Leader at the time, and Congressman Nick Begich boarded a small Cessna. The trip was a relatively short one flying along the southern edge of Alaska from Anchorage to Juneau, a quick and easy flight. Except the plane never arrived. In fact, the aircraft literally seemed to disappear without a trace. When the plane failed to land in Juneau, the disappearance kicked off the largest search-and-rescue mission ever launched up until that time. For more than a month, 40 military aircraft and 50 civilian planes scoured the area, totaling 150 days' worth of combined flight time and more than 32,000 square miles covered. They turned up absolutely nothing. No wreckage, no scrap metal, no impact site or line of broken trees where a plane may have gone down. Not so much as a whisper. But while they've been unable to find the plane and its occupants to this day, rescuers did manage to stir up something. Interest in what's become known as the Alaska Triangle. To date, more than 16,000 people, from hikers and tourists, to airplane passengers, to locals and researchers, have gone missing in this cross-section of Alaskan wilderness. A rate that's more than double the average for the rest of the country. And while the vast, untamed wilderness, predatory wildlife, and harsh weather conditions can no doubt account for a healthy majority of those disappearances, if the legends are true, there's plenty else to be afraid of in the Alaska Triangle. And not all of it is what you might call natural. Long before Western cultures even landed on North American shores, the Inuit people of the North lived in relative harmony 
with a very different kind of people. The Tornet, or Alaskan Bushmen, no relation to the TV show, were huge, hairy people with long legs and arms and enormous strength. The Inuit and the Tornet shared hunting grounds and for the most part simply kept to themselves. But the Tornet's curiosity got the better of them. For all of their strength and stature, the one thing the Tornet didn't have was the ability to build kayaks. They would watch the Inuit paddling around, traversing the sea in inlets with ease, fishing in the open water, and hopping from island to island. In their jealousy and curiosity, the Tornet would sometimes sneak into the Inuit camps and steal their boats. But when a Tornet stole a young Inuit's kayak and sank it by accident, the boy couldn't contain his fury. He snuck into the Tornet's tent that night and cut his throat. Scared this was just the start of the growing fury of the Inuit, the Tornet people packed up and left. Occasionally, people still encounter the Tornet, large figures lumbering between trees. Some even claim to have captured images of them, haunting grainy photographs with labels like Sasquatch and Bigfoot. But any lone wanderer unlucky enough to run into a torrent in the depths of the wilderness rarely lives to tell the tale. More often than not, they're found mangled, bodies broken and contorted, as if viciously twisted by impossibly strong hands. The Tornet are far from the only creatures you should fear in the wilderness of the Alaskan Triangle, though. The region is huge, encompassing everything from dense mountain woodlands to barren tundra, immense icy glaciers to windswept rocky coastlines. Most of the major settlements in Alaska are along the coast, but if you do happen to leave the cities, wander out amongst the rocks and untamed wilderness, it's probably best to keep an ear out. Beneath the gentle rush of waves splashing the shore and the shriek of hungry seabirds, it's faint at first, a humming, light and ethereal, at once eerie and unsettling and strangely alluring. Gazing out to sea, if you're unlucky enough, you may catch a glimpse of her flowing between waves. Green, fishy skin covers her body, and long strands of dark hair hang off of her head, writhing like seaweed in the flowing tide. The Kalupalik is vaguely human-like at first glance, but as she nears, her features aren't quite right, and her fingernails are impossibly long, dark and claw-like. As soon as she begins to hum, though, she suddenly doesn't seem so strange, becomes almost attractive. But that's the real danger now, isn't it? It's the humming that the Kalupalik uses to lure kids to the shoreline, where she snatches them, stuffs them into the pouch on her back, and drags them under the water, never to see their families again. While the Kalupalik prefers them young, even adults aren't always safe at the shoreline. If there's anything more terrifying than a child-snatching sea hag, I'd say it'd have to be the 15-foot-long sea serpent known as the Tizaruk. They're not so subtle as luring children into the water, 
No, the Tisaruk, their style is less deception and more good old-fashioned snatch-and-grab. Despite having a seven-foot-long head lined with scythe-like teeth, they're known for being incredibly quick and incredibly quiet. The Tisaruk have been known to snatch people off of piers and the decks of boats without so much as a sound and barely a ripple of the water. Okay, so clearly the shore isn't safe, but aside from the Sasquatch wandering the land, who seem few and far between, maybe keeping to the forests and mountains is a better bet. Except, and you knew there would be an except, there's the dogs. Sure, wolves and coyotes are some cause for worry, but what you really need to watch out for is the dogs with human torsos. They're called Adlet, and they're bloodthirsty, savage creatures that could put the meanest timber wolf to shame. Born from an unnatural coupling between an Inuit woman and a dog, they were banished to a remote island. Every day their father, the dog, would swim to the mainland, where their human grandfather would fill a pair of boots with fresh meat for the family, place them around the dog's neck, and the dog would swim back to the island. But one day, tired of supporting his daughter and angered by the dishonor she'd brought on their family, the grandfather filled the boots with rocks. And on the way back to the island, the dog drowned. Heartbroken, the Inuit woman did the only thing she could think of to protect her kids from starvation. She sent them to the mainland to fend for themselves. Once there, and with no experience of the wider world, they ran wild, killing and eating nearly anything that crossed their paths. That and making more, Adlet. Between the weather, a huge list of both natural and supernatural creatures, and the general remoteness and isolation of the landscape itself, there are no lack of things just waiting to wipe you off the face of the planet and the Alaskan Triangle. And that doesn't even take into account theories like electromagnetic vile vortexes, places where the Earth's energy behaves strangely, or the old idea of nature fighting back against the abuses of the human race. No matter what the reason, it's hard to ignore the seeming contempt the area has for the human race. As one article I read put it, underneath that massive blanket of snow and rock, likely lies one of the largest and best-preserved mass graves in the world. And if that thought isn't creepy enough, let's get on to some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Daniel LeSaint, who, quite simply, is a writer from Cincinnati, Ohio. Children of the night, join me for Daniel LeSaint's Le Tourbillonon, a Tales to Terrify original. Ava loosened the belt on her bathrobe with one hand as she approached the bedroom doorway. Her right hand held a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon. Jim knew it was Cabernet because that was all she drank. 
Sorry to make you wait, hon. Her words came out slow and soft, but clearly articulated. She's not drunk, Jim thought. Not yet. He sat on the bed, muscles sore and twitchy from overstimulation, his clothes wet and cold. He looked at her, but not at her face. The skin on his hands burned with the onset of fresh calluses. He felt the urge to rub them together, but he sat still. He waited for what might come next. I was watching you from my window while I made the calls. You did good out there. It looks good. A slight pause. He expected her to ask questions, to double-check his work. Was everything put away? Did you make sure? Instead, she continued. Jenny sounded happy, just like I predicted. A snort of air through her nose. It sounded stuffy, as though she had been crying, but he knew she hadn't been. His mom and dad, they... Well, they didn't seem surprised. They knew it wasn't the first time. Grandma sounded relieved. She wants us to visit soon. The low rumble of thunder vibrated the house. Jim didn't recall there being a lightning flash. The rain had been coming down steady for hours now. I really don't think we have anything to worry about. She made a step forward, crossing the threshold from the brightly lit hallway into the bedroom. Anything at all? He found he could look at her easier now that her face was in the shadows. Her left hand held onto the robe's belt while her right swirled the cabernet around and around in its goblet. Jim recognized this habit of hers. She wasn't concerned about the quality of the wine. She was thinking. Eventually, after a few more glasses, the habit would break. Aren't you cold, baby? You should get out of those wet clothes. We'll need to wash them. She looked down at her wine, legs forming on the side of her glass, and took a small sip. You know what? She spoke up, as if the idea had just occurred to her. Let's go shopping tomorrow. We've earned it now, haven't we? We'll get all new clothes, a whole new wardrobe, the both of us. She came closer, bending to set her wine glass on the nightstand and sat down next to him. She was a small woman, shorter than Jim for almost a year now, and he barely felt the bed sink under her weight. Jim, baby, it's all right. You can look at my face. It doesn't hurt that bad, I promise. She reached out and put her hand on his, squeezing gently. He started to look up, but quickly turned his head away. You're awfully strong, you know. I can't say it doesn't hurt but I'll be okay. We had to do it, you know? You did good. She squeezed again, and now he did look up into her face. Her eye had not only started to turn purple, but it was now swollen, too. Her nose looked normal in the dark of the bedroom, but he knew it would be fully bruised tomorrow. He could see the darkness of what he knew to be dried blood crusted around her nostrils. But her mouth was the worst. Looking at those lips caused him a tinge of nausea that made his heart rate speed up. Puffy and bruised with a cut on the corner of her mouth where her teeth had cut into them. He wanted to look away again, but she wouldn't let him. She had reached out and took hold of his chin, turning his face toward hers. Jim, 
I want you to listen to me, baby. You're the man of the house now. I need you. I need you strong. Can you do that for me? Lightning flashed outside, and this time he did see it. The spark of electricity flashed in her eyes as he nodded, her smooth hand sliding on his face. He said that he would. Outside, the rain came down in heavy sheets, softening the mound of dirt in the backyard and driving it back into the earth, where it belonged. Jim had dug deep. The mound was large, but it wouldn't take long. She said they could buy grass seed tomorrow, maybe a little tree to plant there. They talked for a while about the past. She went to refill her wine and brought the bottle up for them to share. They talked about the future. She sat on the bed, swirling her wine around and around in hypnotic circles. Everything was going to be better now. They were safe. They were free. That was Daniel Lesaint's Le Tourbillonon, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Farfetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and the Cursed Inn podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Our second story this evening is from Dave Ring. Dave Ring is a 2013 Lambda Literary Fellow and co-chair of the Outright LGBT Book Festival in Washington, D.C., who has recently placed stories with the board gaming anthology Tabletop Tales and Mythic Magazine. He is also the editor of Broken Metropolis, Queer Tales of a City That Never Was, an anthology forthcoming from Mason Jar Press. Listen with me, children of the night, to Dave Ring's The Salt Witch, first published in The Audient Void No. 7, January 2019.
Who's in the teacup? Who's in the blood? Who's in the river singing back the flood? Who's in the hollow? Who's in the sea? Who's in the ocean laughing at me? The Salt Witch When you live in this town and you work on the shore, you get into the same routine as everybody else, especially at the end of the long days we have in the summer, when the sea breeze comes in from the east and an orange and purple sunset spreads across the whole sky like the most beautiful bruise you've ever seen. You get ice cream on the boardwalk from one of Sammy's three kids. You buy the Daily Gazette from Shaniqua Collins or her husband Tom at the corner store. You drink cheap beers at Rossio Heights. You shoot pool at Theodot's. And when your birthday comes around, you go to the carriage house on the back part of the abandoned McAllister estate to have old lady Holder read your future. You don't ask where she gets the fist-sized squid she has swimming around in that murky tank of water. You hand her the $40 and put the kettle on with seawater like she tells you to. You watch her as she rolls up her sleeve and sticks her whole arm in that tank, digging around until she finds the one that speaks to her, she says. You don't flinch when she pricks your finger with the shark tooth around her neck. You don't tell her about the one you have around yours. You assume she knows. You watch as she counts out eight drops of blood. And when you drink it, you don't think about the squid ink or the blood or the salt. You drink it until she tells you that you drank enough. When old lady Holder dumps out the rest of the teacup on today's copy of the Gazette, gets out her reading glasses and peers at what she sees there, you hope that your future will say, not yet. And when she offers you the salt witch's blessing for another 40 bucks, you always say yes. Except maybe that year you don't have much in your pockets. Your starved wallet barely makes a dent in the front pocket of your cutoffs. But old lady holder doesn't do much with sorry or maybe later. Everyone at Theodots will know you went to see her. They'll expect the smudge line of black ink across your brow. So in the car you lick your thumb and use the rearview mirror to smear newsprint on your forehead. Just to avoid the talk. I get home late. I'm not there five minutes when there's a knock on the door. I answer it, I'm thinking. And there's four acolytes on the porch, their faces covered with masks. They move in quickly. I get pulled out onto the porch, dragged into the street. I should have given the old lady holder the extra 40 bucks. What did I do? I try to ask, over and over, but they don't answer. I've seen them before, of course, but never this close. I offer them money, money that I don't have, but they ignore me. The masks are screaming, tooth-filled mouths carved from gnarled driftwood. Smooth green and blue beads of sea glass dangle from them on silver threads, clatter against each other when they move. Wild manes of seaweed, still vibrant and wet, cascade from the brow and sides. The seaweed is a mess of dead man's fingers, rack and bull kelp, frilly and coarse. I fight them, but their hands are strong and unyielding. They drag me through the center of town, and no one raises a finger. I stumble barefoot through the square. They just avert their eyes. I see Jeanette and Saul. I yell their names. They stop in their tracks. Jeanette pulls Saul back, shakes her head. I want to cuss them out, spit at their feet. 
But I'd been there myself on a late night when the acolytes came through. So I say nothing. They take me to the beach like I knew they would. When we reach the hollow, right by where the river meets the sea, the acolytes hold me down and cut my clothes away with a knife. It's dark at first, but they light candles, and then the light coming through the storm sconces makes everything ruddy and strange. They still say nothing as they prepare things, and it's quiet, just the surf and heavy breath of exertion from tearing a grown man unwillingly from his home. They wear little besides their masks, only scraps of twine around their necks, strung with broken shells. It makes my own forced nakedness feel less vulnerable than I would have expected. One acolyte has a circular scar on her hip and thigh. Another is missing most of his foot. They push me to my knees, chain my wrists to the manacles bolted to the ceiling. They hold my head still between their hands so they can decorate my hair with dahlias, weave them into a garland around my shuddering, bare waist. One of the acolytes has a look to him. He carries a bag woven from dune grass, now empty of flowers. If he hadn't been an acolyte, and I hadn't been a sacrifice, I'd cherish the sight of his body. Sand clings to his wide chins and the flat muscles of his chest. When he slings the bag over his shoulder and looks back at me, the candlelight catches him just so, and the hair on his arm glints like burnished gold. He looks like someone I knew once, would have sworn was lost forever. I think I'm meeting his eyes through the mask, and I feel something like hope. But he turns and leaves me there, like the others. I've been here before, and long as I've been alive, the tithe has got made in the hollow, when the tide was low and the moon was almost dark. They said that before the salt witch came, the river ran high and people died. The tithe kept her happy, see? Kids were always daring each other to go to the hollow. But as much as you might be giggling when you go in there, it was hard to laugh after you saw the rock and the chains broken and old. The dares only happen during the daytime. It's much easier to be brave when, after you've had enough, you can run right back out of the darkness to feel the warmth of the sun on your face. There was a boy I used to play with the summer I turned 17, named Raul. We thought we were men. We'd shed our youthful fat, grown our hair on our chests. Well, he had a wiry copper red against the brown skin of his belly. Both of us were even darker than usual from long days spent in the sun. Raul had planned to leave the village in the fall, take up a trade in the city. I always told him that I'd go with him, but in my heart I never really imagined leaving. We thought no one knew what we got up to on the dunes, after the sun slipped under the skin of the sea. We didn't even know what to call it, or if we did, we didn't say the words. Not out loud, anyway. But we were happy. When they took Raoul for the tithe, I was waiting for him by the beach. It wasn't like him to be late, so I waited for hours. I killed time making up my own names for the constellations, since I didn't know the real ones. Eventually, I got cold and went home. My mom had asked me where I'd been, licked her fingers and fussed with my hair. Normally, she didn't bother, so it struck me as strange. By the time I got the story out of her, it was already too late. It didn't feel real at first, 
I imagined a woman in a white suit arriving at his family's door saying, The salt witch takes her due. See, Raoul wasn't the first I lost to the tithe. When I was a boy, my Aunt Jocelyn was chosen. I liked her. Her and her husband always treated me and my sister like we were grown. Listened to what we had to say. She didn't come back. Everyone knew that you had to give the salt witch your troublemakers, or else she might come for you. Maybe she'd have some use for them, and they'd come back to you. Mostly they did. And the ones that didn't, well. If you were too bad for the salt witch to find good in you, you must have been pretty bad. They took Jocelyn from my grandpa's house next door, kicking and screaming. I remember how strange the salt witch's acolytes looked. I remember seeing a woman's uncovered breast for the first time. I remember my mother covering my eyes with her hands, her fingers still smelling of the sea after a long day at the wharf. I remember she wouldn't let herself cry. That night, she smashed a teacup against the wall and just stood there. It scared me. My sister Kayla pushed past me, bent down to pick up the pieces. Kayla had to ask Mom to move three times so she could clean up. The next morning, my mother put both of us into our Sunday best. Kayla's hair carefully braided and mine freshly buzzed. We walked next door and Grandpa was sitting at the dining room table with Uncle Brian, Jocelyn's husband, and a few of the neighbors. All day, folks dropped by in ones and twos, bringing biscuits and casseroles. It was like a wake without the funeral. We played hearts and whist for hours, stopping whenever someone knocked at the door, waiting for something. We were there long after the sun went down. Kayla managed to pour sweet tea all over the cards, so I had to jump up to get another deck from our house. But there was a woman at the door. She wore a white suit and had a matching scar on her chin that crept down her neck and stood out against her dark brown skin. She said hello, I think, but my tongue wasn't working, and then my mom was there saying hello back. She didn't bring food like the others, only a big white flower and a shark tooth strung on a cord. My mother didn't want to take it, but the woman insisted. She's not coming back, my mom said, like she wasn't sure, testing the waters. The salt witch takes her due, the woman said. My mother asked the woman to leave, just like that, real direct. I'd never seen her be so rude to someone. She threw the tooth into the trash after the woman left, but as soon as I was alone, I fished it out. The tooth looked old, but I cut my finger testing the edge. I pulled it over my neck and tucked it in so no one would see it. That shark tooth still hangs there now. It was the only thing of my own that the acolytes left me with. The day after Raoul was taken for the tithe, I made a green bean casserole for the first time and brought it to his house. No one had answered the door when I knocked. The screen door had an awful creak. There were three casserole dishes already on the kitchen table, each covered in foil. I put the dish on the table and crossed my arms. Without it in my hands, I abruptly felt like an intruder. I picked it back up and stepped into the hallway. Frames filled with Raoul's face covered the walls. When the parade of photos stopped, I looked up and saw his mother bordered by the shiny wood of the doorframe. 
She was rubbing her hand along an old scar she had, an imperfect circle that ringed her shoulder and climbed up her jaw. I knew her even without that white suit. She wouldn't take him, she'd said distraught. She didn't want him. I remember the sound of the casserole dish shattering on the floor. I don't remember leaving. I haven't thought about Raoul in a long time. It had been easier not to. Could that have been him amongst the acolytes? Couldn't have. It was stupid to think so. My knees dig into the cracked, dry skin of sand that lines the floor of the cave. I feel cold and exposed. The tide is getting closer and closer to drowning me. By the time the water's first touch comes, coolness licking at my knees, I actually welcome it, a break in the tedium. Something to focus my attention on instead of the memories and the numbness plaguing my fingers. But the water rises, slides up above my bent knees, and retreats. It courses above my thighs, dashing me backwards against the rock. The manacles pull at my wrists overhead. It comes again even higher, and it knocks the wind from my gut. The manacles cut into my skin, and blood streaks my arm from wrist to elbow, the blood gleaming nearly black in the light. The water surges higher and higher now. Even when it retreats, it's still at my waist. It snuffs out one candle, and then another, filling the cave with a sweet, acrid smoke for a few moments until, once again, all I can smell is overpowering salt. The water puts out the last candle, and I'm almost grateful. This will be over soon. Things move in the dark water. I feel tiny mouths of fish nibbling at my legs, my chest. All I can do is thrash and shout and try not to swallow the brine, press my mouth to the rock above me to gasp for air. I snatch at thin scraps of breath, take in burning gulps of seawater. Something large brushes against me. I can't see it, but I feel it. Hide scratchy, like Velcro. Shit, they're coming early tonight, I hear. Hands from somewhere behind me grip my arms. It was the acolyte, the man from earlier, still wearing that awful mask. He opens the manacles, pushing me towards the entrance of the hollow, towards the sea. My arms burn after being held up for so long. Stop fighting it, the man says around mouthfuls of water. Let the salt witch take you. His hands caress my chest, and I lean back against him, even as I'm close to drowning. I can feel his arousal against me, insistent despite the cold water, and I'm caught for a moment between this watery death and a memory of dune grass and sweat. Who are you? I ask, voice breaking. He is quiet behind me, but I need to know. I turn and pull away his mask. It isn't Raoul. It's Tom fucking Collins from the corner store. A moan escapes my lips before I can stifle it. The things in the water knock into me, sweep my feet out from under me. I pull in one last breath, filled with the taste of the salt-drenched ceiling above me. Before I'm under, torn away from Tom and his cheating dick. I feel the air burn in my chest as we fight through the surf. I hold on to something. Without that burn, there's nothing but darkness and pain and water and the memory of air. It drags me deeper. Teeth tearing bloody rents in my side. Shapes buffet me, skin like scraping sandpaper. 
Something pulls me close, huge and slick and writhing, and a blood-warm current washes over me, sticky and thick. I inhale again, unthinking, and I take in water. And ink, I realize. The warmth was ink. I feel my lungs collapse. The world dilates around me. My eyes burn with silt until a second eyelid, clear and filmy, bursts itself and descends to shield my irises. My lungs are empty, but my body still breathes. A monstrous shape, opal-shelled and roiling with tentacles, shelters me from the flitting shadows of sharks, more than I could count, circling and hungry. The salt witch holds me beneath her mantle in one sucker-covered arm and thrashes at the sharks with their massive tentacles. The blood seeping from my wounds spreads around me in a black nimbus. I see the sharks dart closer, made brazen by the taste of it. She loosens her grip on me to fend them off. I pull that shark tooth from my neck, clutch it between my fingers the way I hold my car keys in dark parking lots. I don't know if I'll ever have this chance again. Who would they bring a white flower to? Above my head, just where the salt witch's mantle looms over me, is her huge, unblinking, iridescent purple eye. She pays little notice to me now, intent on the sharks harrying her, the salt witch, and her rivals. The smallness of it all crushes something in me. I press my hand to the wound at my side, vision blurring. Someone with ideals worth dying for will break this tithe. Someone who doesn't care about the flood. Someone who doesn't care if Tom Collins gets his cheating ass put on blast. But me? No. I wait for it all to end and let the tooth fall to the muddy ocean floor, imagining myself in a colorless suit, knocking on a door. That was Dave Ring's The Salt Witch, as read by Spencer Desparty. Spencer Desparty is a poet and musician who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, with his wife and whirlwind of a son. He has narrated for Pseudopod, Starship Sofa, and Escape Artists. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash descendantofnix. Link is in the show notes. Great to hear from you again, Spencer. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Ratings and reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. It helps us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, 
Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we peer into the void with more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 